Thank you to our Bible readings and good morning, everyone. Uh, puppets aside, great to be here uh, with you all this morning. You, uh, you might like to keep your Bibles nearby, um, particularly that Ecclesiastes passage we'll come back to in a moment, but we will look at a few things in the course of this morning. Uh, we are continuing through the series that we began uh, last week, thinking about what the Bible has to say uh, about money and about how we use our money. And uh, for those who weren't here, or just as a recap from last week, if it's helpful, Uh, There were two key points uh, that we had to start building our framework for how the Bible would have us think about our wealth. One was to think about our wealth as not being belonging to us, but as something which belongs to God. Uh, So it is actually God's uh, possession which he has given to us, or rather entrusted to us uh, to use. And therefore, as God's and not ours, the way that we use it, means that we should be mindful of its true owner. That is, we should use what God has given us uh, with his kingdom in in mind. Now, we come to wealth and poverty uh, today. Last week, we spoke about what the Bible has to say about God and money. This week, it's about what the Bible has to say about wealth and poverty. Uh, Money is always a difficult thing to talk about, so I'm going to pray as we begin that we would listen well. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak on many things and not least of all that you speak much practical wisdom for us to take on board. We pray that we would be open to you, Lord, uh, that we would be willing to hear your word where it might disagree with the way that we have lived uh, and to respond to your guidance to us. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. And that's probably a good thing to pray about as we begin this morning, because if if money is a loaded topic, uh, I think wealth and poverty, and particularly how we respond to wealth and poverty as Christians, is uh, equally loaded. Uh, There are some things, some very few things, that we as Christians agree on when it comes to thinking about wealth and poverty. Uh, We do agree that The people who are truly suffering, the homeless, uh, the starving, people who are in dire circumstances, we agree that it would be good if something is done to alleviate that suffering, right? That's something that I hope, at least, that we can all agree on, uh, that it would be good uh, to do something about the suffering that is in the world. Most Christians would agree on this, I believe, but... If we're going to be brutally honest, there is not much more that you can reach any kind of uniform agreement on uh, with a group of Christians. We don't agree on how we should help the poor. Some people believe that it's the government's role. Uh, Some people believe that the government should step in to care for those who are in need. Other people believe uh, it's an individual role, uh, that people as they are led should go to do something about the suffering that we see in the world. Or foreign aid. Now there's another dividing one, isn't it? Is it right or wrong to favour Australians ahead of people of other nationalities when we are looking to give uh, towards those who are in need? What about billionaires? What do we do about the ultra-wealthy? Some people believe they should be taxed into the ground and that wealth redistributed uh, throughout the community. Other people believe that the only way for anyone to break out of poverty is through tough love, uh, where they are caused or pushed to stand on their own two feet rather than relying on handouts. Now, I don't know how you feel about those questions, uh, but these are hopefully starting to point out that this is a very divisive 
topic. You may even have heard some of those social issues uh, just mentioned now and picked out those ones which are particularly dear to you or perhaps seem obvious to you and you can't imagine how there could ever be a dispute about them. Now the thing is that we can find Bible passages to support just about any position on those issues. But to say that there is a clear uh, Bible bias towards any of those often requires us to ignore other parts of the Bible that seem to present a more balanced view, or if not to ignore them completely, to explain them away as somehow meaning something different uh, than what they seem to. So we need to be very careful to come to a position that takes into account everything that the Bible has to say about this topic, or at the very least, something that is consistent with the way that the Bible speaks about this topic. So to give an example of that, on the one hand, we have passages like this one from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, where Moses says there, Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. And so you can read that and you can say, well, look, it says it right there. God has given me the ability to generate wealth. And therefore, if I am wealthy, it's because God made me this way. Uh, So do I need any further mandate to store up wealth? Uh, And even further, the Bible seems to say that you don't need to help people. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, Paul writes, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, if you are not convinced that people might use that verse to say we don't need to give to those in need, two years ago, that verse was quoted by an American politician to justify why he had voted against a food program for the poorest of the poor living in America. But you could just as easily argue the opposite, couldn't you? Now, you probably even had a sense that those are very selective verses and that they come in a particular context that needs to be understood because you could equally argue the opposite from 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. It's a memory verse that we've done here before. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Now that verse seems to say, if you see need in the world and don't give to it, uh, then perhaps that calls your very faith into question. So what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this question of wealth and poverty? How do we reach a Christian position on this topic that is a helpful one uh, to help us think through, particularly as people who by and large, we are not poor. We are the wealthy, at least on a global scale, how we respond to this problem of poverty in our world. Now, just like last week, we are going to need some guidelines to help us think through consistently what the Bible is saying here. We had our first two already, the first two from last week, thinking about God and money, exactly the same. We need to think about our wealth as belonging to God and not as something that belongs to us as individuals and therefore as God's possession, it should be used for God's kingdom with its true owner in mind. So what can we add to that to help us think through wealth and poverty? Well, the first question that we need to think through is whether wealth is good or bad. 
Is wealth itself and therefore being wealthy a good thing or is it a bad thing? Now remember, we're using wealth as a term here, just to to clarify that as well, more often than I use the term money, uh, which is just a way of helping us remember that uh, being wealthy refers to just our overall possessions and lifestyle. If I just say money, we tend to think in terms of cash flow. Uh, So depending on how much cash I happen to have on hand uh, determines whether I'm wealthy or not. Rather, the sum total of what we have uh, helps us think about that. All of our wealth is something that we should think about. So, is wealth good or bad? Well, the Old Testament seems certainly quite often to suggest that it's good, doesn't it, to be wealthy. Uh, We heard that verse already from Deuteronomy, which said that uh, the Lord has given you the ability to become wealthy. And certainly that seems to be borne out in the lives of many of the figures that we meet in the Old Testament. Now, Abraham, for example, we know Abraham, uh, he's kind of the father of Judaism in that sense. God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, uh, calls him to go to a new land and make some great promises to Abraham. Uh, Abraham was doing pretty well to start with. We should acknowledge when you read in Genesis 12 about the call of Abraham, you read that he already had a family, possessions and servants that he had to gather together uh, in order to go to the new land. So Abraham isn't exactly starting broke. Uh, But while Abraham listens to God, God seems to bless him even more. Uh, And in fact, sometimes when Abraham is not doing what God calls him to do, God just gives him more anyway. Uh, So there certainly seems to be that link between following God and getting material blessing in the life of Abraham. Uh, Then you have Lot, Abraham's nephew, Lot. Uh, Lot gets held up a few times during his life in Genesis as an example of righteousness, right? So in the face of uh, gross rejection of who God is, uh, often Lot is held up as this shining light of one who stood firm uh, in the face of all of that. And the same thing happens to Lot, Right? He has some hard times in his life, but he just keeps getting richer and richer overall. Now, that pattern continues right through the Old Testament. Right, David, King David, uh, gets chosen to be Israel's next king. When he's chosen, he's just a shepherd looking after the flocks out in the field. Uh, by the end of his time, he's living in a palace, ruling over all of Israel. Righteous people seem to receive wealth in the Old Testament. And the whole nation benefits as a result. Is this a pattern for us? It would be very easy for us, would it not? And many people do read the Old Testament this way uh, to say, well, these stories uh, seem to suggest that righteousness leads to wealth. Therefore, if I am wealthy, it's because I am righteous. Right? It seems to make sense. Uh, but again, that would both be a very selective reading of the Bible Uh, It's also not actually a logical progression to say that, well, if God gave wealth to some righteous people, therefore all wealthy people are righteous. Uh, That doesn't actually even follow logically. Uh, It is not that easy to link money and faithfulness. And in fact, we can actually see that if we're going to read more of the Old Testament, can't we? We stopped at David. We could talk about Solomon. Now, Solomon started well. Solomon was praised for his wisdom. But even as Solomon grew in wealth and power, he grew further and further away from God. And so by the end of Solomon's life, we're often asking the question, well, is Solomon really even 
a faithful follower of God at all, uh, because the text certainly suggests that he finishes his life worshipping other gods. You can be very rich and unfaithful as well. So we should be very careful and cautious in trying to say that, well, wealth is a sign of God's blessing upon us. That's true now. That was true in Old Testament times. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Jeremiah 12 uh, says, Jeremiah actually speaks to God. He says, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Right? This is his way of buttering God up for the accusation that he's about to make. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. I don't know if you can imagine praying to God like that. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Right? Do you get his challenge? He's saying, look, you are, you are a God of righteousness. You are a God of justice. Why is it then that I look at your world and I see that the unrighteous are thriving. That people who reject God, who openly and actively work against him, are doing well. And deep down, we know that this is true, don't we? We know that being rich does not automatically mean that you are righteous as well. And at the same time, we, don't know, we know that following God does not automatically mean that you will receive wealth and riches. But at the same time, we're quite often prepared to believe that while it may not be a general case, it's certainly true of us. You know, not all wealth is because of righteousness, but mine is. We need to be very careful in the way that we do that. And in fact, to think that way at all suggests that we're thinking about wealth in individualistic terms, isn't it? Because if we say that, we're saying that wealth is a reward, that God gives us so that we might indulge ourselves in exchange for our faithfulness. But if we think of our wealth as belonging to God, then to have more is not to receive an extra gift to spend on what you will. Rather, it's something you've been entrusted with to use for his kingdom. And so if you are a righteous person who has been given wealth, you have simply been given a greater responsibility. Wealth isn't so much a blessing as it is a responsibility, or perhaps it's both, uh, to be invited to use it for the sake of God's kingdom. Now, we saw that warning of the responsibility of wealth and the deception of wealth uh, in that Ecclesiastes passage, didn't we? Ecclesiastes certainly encourages us to think of wealth as a responsibility that should be used well, uh, but also as a great danger Uh, that we should be wary of should we find ourselves in possession of it. Uh, Now, culturally, we are encouraged to desire wealth, aren't we? That's what our culture tells us to do. Uh, Not for its own sake. People aren't saying to us, get rich so that you'll be rich. People are encouraging us to uh, chase wealth because of the things that it can provide us. Wealth can give you comfort in life, in a hard world. Wealth can give you security in the face of uncertainty. You can be independent if you are wealthy enough. It can give you luxury, enjoyment. Uh, All of these things, whatever you want, our culture tells you, money can buy it. We're told that wealth is almost unreservedly positive. Now, Ecclesiastes gives us three very strong warnings about how deceptive money can be. 
First thing, wealth never satisfies. No matter how much you have, it's never enough. Uh, Whoever loves money, Ecclesiastes says, never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Now, that could not be more true now than it was then. Uh, Now, I think we see this particularly at the very top end of wealth, don't we? You know, if you're going to look at the the ultra-wealthy, the billionaires of the world, uh, in what possible conceivable world do you not have enough money to live for the rest of your life once you hit $1 billion, right? Except they don't stop, do they? You reach $1 billion and you need two, and then you need three, and then you need four. And really, you have so much money that there is no way you could ever spend it all, even if you were to try. Why? Because there's never enough. It's not just the having wealth that we're hungry for. It's the gaining of more. Uh, It's a trap. Uh, It's like a hunt for something that you can never catch. Uh, Now, it's not just true at the top end of us. Uh, It's true for all of us as well. It's not just the billionaires that suffer from this. All of us know that there is a job out there or a promotion we could get that pays just a little bit better. And how much better will things be when we reach there? There is a nicer neighbourhood we could move into, a house that provides everything that we want. We could upgrade the car, finally. There's a better school that we could get the kids into. We could pursue those hobbies or travel that we've always wanted to. There's a new piece of technology so that we could finally upgrade the old one we've been dragging around for so long. Wealth never satisfies. And if we devote ourselves to chasing it, we will never catch it. And it will make us miserable because it's a hunt that is never over. Uh, It is always one step away. The deception of wealth, though, is that it's only ever a little bit, right? It's only ever a small step that we're thinking we have to take. We think it's just around the corner, satisfaction, just one more step, one more of those things, and then finally, I will be so much happier, so much more, but we take that step, we turn that corner, and we find there's another one, and another one, and another one. We're not hungry to become billionaires. We always just want a little bit more. I will be content if I can gain just a little bit more. If I just had a couple of hundred extra dollars a month uh, to cover the bills, if I could just replace my car, if I could just whatever it is, it's always something that can be easily justified. Uh, And there's always one more step to take. And so greed gets its hooks into us. But if we think of wealth like stewards rather than owners, we begin to see the opportunities that God gives us to use what we already have for a better purpose than simply stockpiling it and looking for more. Because the truth is, and this is another of those great things that we need to unlearn if we want to have a better view of wealth and poverty, is that even if we do stockpile it, even if we manage to turn every corner and uh, find that wealth that we've been hungry for, even if we do get all the things we want... Wealth is still uncertain. That security is just an illusion. We saw that in verses 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes 5. There the writer says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Now, wealth promises security and contentment but it is a very fragile security. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, maybe back then, 
maybe when someone could break in and steal all of your wealth or perhaps your ship could be lost at sea and they didn't have insurance or savings. You know, we can look and say, well, back then, certainly that was true. But now wealth can, can definitely provide you with security in life. Uh, but many people found that that was not as true as they thought during the global financial crisis uh, about 10 years ago when the American Stock Exchange in a couple of months lost more than 50% of its value. And probably those who found that out the hardest way were those who suddenly found that they had home loans which were greater than the value of their home so that even if they sold their house, they couldn't pay off the debt and they didn't have a job anymore in order to earn money to keep making those payments. Wealth promises security, but that security is an illusion that can be burned up almost overnight. And wealth promises happiness, but that happiness is equally illusory. See, there can't be anyone here, I don't think, who hasn't had that experience of wanting something, of longing to receive something, longing to get something, only to find when you get it that it's not as satisfying as you thought it would be and that you still want something else. Uh, For me, I probably most memorably had that experience. Uh, One Christmas many years ago when I was 12 and I'd been longing for a slot car racing set. Right? This was my great ambition. For months, I'd wanted that. Finally, Christmas rolled around. I received this. This was probably the first time I'd ever got you know, the big present that I really wanted, uh, only to find that I lasted about two days before getting completely bored because in the end, the cars just go around and around and occasionally fall over. Now, that was true of a, a, a tiny trivial thing like that, but the principle never stops being true. We think... When we get there, how much happier we'll be. When we, not, not just because our bank balance is bigger, but when we have those things that we want, how much happier uh, I will be. And yet the delivery is always an anticlimax. Uh, the happiness money promises uh, is fleeting at best. And finally, Ecclesiastes reminds us, you can't take it with you. Uh, that was there in verse 15. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands, right? So no matter how much you gain over the years, none of it lasts beyond our death. Now, on one level, who really cares about that, right? You can't take it with you. Don't particularly care because I'll be dead anyway. So I'm not going to be too upset about that. We can always leave it to our descendants if we have any. But there's a bigger point to be made, isn't there? Money doesn't last into eternity. But people do. See, if wealth is something that is limited to this life, if the best you can do is buy a few more things in this life, but at the same time you have the opportunity to influence people for an eternity, well, which one of those is more important? You see, when we reach the end of our lives here and face eternity, will it be more important that we invested in mission or that we managed to pay off our home loan a few years early? Will it be more important that we were able to help struggling families in need or that we got to upgrade our car every five years? And we could go on, couldn't we, of the choices that we realistically face. Wealth in itself is not bad. Being wealthy is not a bad thing, but it is a dangerous thing. It comes with so many traps that we can so easily fall into without even realising. It's like having an unexploded bomb in your house. It may never go off. You may navigate your whole life 
and never fall into these traps. But if it does, well, it's catastrophic. Money promises much but delivers little. It can't be relied on and in the end it's limited to this life and this world when we're called to have a much bigger perspective. So then we could ask the question, couldn't we, that if wealth is something to be used for the sake of God's kingdom and it comes with all of these warnings of the dangers of wealth, does that mean that as Christians we are obliged to help the poor? Now obviously helping the poor is not a bad thing. I'm not asking is it good or bad to help the poor. That's not the question. The question is are we as Christians obliged to do something about the poverty that we see in our world? Now some Christians would say yes. Some Christians would say that the gospel necessarily leads you to that kind of approach to generosity, that when you see the need and have the means, you are required to do something about it. They would say from places like that memory verse that we read in 1 John, uh, that if you fail to do anything in response to the poverty around us, then are you really following Jesus? Do we think that's fair as an approach? Others would say, well, Jesus said that the poor will always be among you, so what can you realistically do? Sure, you could give uh, to alleviate it a bit as the opportunity presents itself, but far better to pray for Jesus to come and fix uh, everything and uh, you know, perhaps focus on delivering people in the long term uh, through mission work. If we're wealthy, how do we think about the poor? Well, let's apply those principles of Christian wealth that we've been talking about. So, what are the principles that we have in play here when we think about how we, as wealthy, respond to the needs of our world? First and foremost, we need to remember that our wealth belongs to God. I've said that several times over the last couple of weeks, but we need to remember that. And so, our first question in thinking about how we respond needs to be, what would God do in our place because realistically that's what it means to be someone who is following Jesus it means to be someone who is a caretaker of what God has given you in his name someone who acts as a representative uh, of God now that should tell us for starters at the very least that our role is not just to be complaining that the ultra wealthy or the government should be doing something about the problems that we see around us doesn't it now that may be true You may think it is, you may not, but ultimately that's not our primary responsibility. By all means, advocate for what you think the government should do in terms of distributing wealth, but our primary role is to be responsible with what God has given us, not with what God has given other people. And if we're not being faithful with what God has given us, no matter how small or insignificant it may be, we can't really complain that other people aren't being faithful with what God has given them. So, that's our first step. Remember, wealth belongs to God and we should use it responsibly. Secondly, we should remember that all people everywhere, no matter what has happened to them, no matter what choices they may have made which contribute to their circumstances, all people are made equally in the image of God and carry dignity before him as divine image bearers. Uh, Now, one of the things that people groups have done throughout history to justify prejudice and discrimination is to paint other people as being somehow less worthy than we are. 
Uh, And this is no different in thinking about wealth and poverty. So often people have argued against giving to those in poverty because those people are immoral. Those people make terrible decisions and can't be trusted with whatever we'd give them anyway. Uh, And so really we should just leave them to sort themselves out first. It's so easy, isn't it? to perpetuate stereotypes in about social classes that suggest it's their own fault that they're poor or that it's a sign of God's disfavour towards them for the decisions they've made. So how can we say that we should help them? Uh, well, the, the second passage that I think we heard read for us this morning, I think, is a, is a great help for us in wrestling with that question. We heard the rich man and Lazarus. Now, you heard that story. You've probably heard it before. There is a wealthy man, a rich man, uh, who has a beggar named Lazarus who lives uh, at the gates of his estate. Now, it's a bit of a twist, that, isn't it? Like, you know, this very wealthy man just happens to have the beggar living by his gate. But that's how it is. What that means is that every single morning, this wealthy man wakes up in his luxurious bed gets up, eats his indulgent breakfast, dresses in his rich clothes and goes off to his prestigious job where he receives the praise of all those who live in the city. And every morning and every evening, he walks past this beggar sitting at his gate and does absolutely nothing. That's the big thing in this story, right? Poverty wasn't something that was far off and out of sight, so I don't have to think about it. It's right there. It was right there at his gate and he did nothing. Now, eventually the story ends, as all stories end, if you give them enough time, they both die. Uh, The rich man goes into torment and the poor beggar goes to paradise. So what's the point that the author is making, that Jesus is making? He's not just saying rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven, right? Okay, that would be a very trivial reading of the story, but that doesn't really fit what we know of the gospel, does it? But there has been a distinction made and we should notice that. That one party ends up in torment, the other one ends up in paradise. It's not because of how much money they had, but there is something. Uh, Perhaps more relevant is that the actions of those characters reveal something about their attitude to God. Because ultimately, this is an evangelistic story, isn't it? That's the application Jesus makes with the story. He doesn't end up by saying, therefore, go and give money to people. No, what he ends up by saying is putting in Abraham's mouth, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What do you think he's talking about there? Who do we know who's about to rise from the dead about seven chapters from now in Luke's gospel? He's pretty clearly talking about himself and he's pretty clearly saying that there will be people who will not believe even should he rise from the dead. He's not saying in the context of the gospel, giving to the poor will get you into heaven. But he is saying that a heart which is generous towards ourselves, but stingy towards others, might be a symptom that we should address of a lack of repentance. So the fruit of the gospel should be to see our natural greed transformed into generosity. Now, I think that's a theme that we see repeated over and over again through the Old Testament and the New Testament. But hopefully that's been clear enough. The gospel transformation that takes place in Christians is not transactional. It's not like getting your ticket punched 
you know, you've kind of bought your ticket into heaven, you get it stamped and that's it. As long as you hold on to that, you're going to make it into heaven, no problem. It's not about a transaction, it's a transformation. A transformation of mind, a transformation of heart and even a transformation of wallet. The gospel calls us to treat others in the way that God has treated us. To give freely, not because they deserve it, but because God gave freely to us when we didn't deserve it. To love others, not because they're necessarily lovely, but because we were loved when we weren't lovely. To treat others as God treated us. And so the challenge then is how we respond. And really, that's the point that we have to finish Uh, because there isn't a law, uh, just like, uh, well, so many other things. Uh, There isn't a rule of how much you should give to the poor or who are the real poor or what it might look like. Uh, Really, there is just a call to respond to how God might be leading you. Uh, What have you been entrusted with? How might it be used for the sake of others uh, to care for them, to draw them closer to God. There's a lot of thinking to be done. There's a lot of talking to be done, perhaps, as we explore this uh, with one another. Uh, But I think it's something that we can't do without God. Uh, So why don't we finish in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks and great praise that you are a loving God and that you are a generous God. We thank you uh, that you made all things. Uh, We thank you for this creation that you have brought about. We thank you for the gift of life and we thank you for the many good things that you have given us to enjoy it. Uh, Father, we pray that even as we look to you and look to the cross, that you might be at work in our hearts to transform us to be more like your son. That as we know what you have saved us from and as we know the depths of that grace you have shown us, that we will be people who show grace to others. I would help us to think of the things we have as not being merely ours, but being things that might be used for the sake of all those that you bring into contact with us and all those who have need whom we see in your world. And Father, help us to respond with kindness and love and grace and compassion, even as you did in your time here on earth. And we pray all this, Father, in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.